YTTP Studios presents To The People Podcast. This podcast is powered by Youth To The People. I'm your host, Alyssa Shapiro, Editorial and Special Projects Director at Youth To The People. We create pro-grade vegan, cruelty-free skincare for all, all genders, all skin tones, all passions, all people. And right here, every Sunday, you'll meet friends of the brand who are advocates, artists, changemakers, and community builders. And our conversations go deep, from healing trauma through joy, to decolonizing education, to discovering what it really means to build community. You can hit that subscribe button whenever you're ready. Today, I'm speaking with Celine Zaman, a Lebanese-American designer and researcher, and executive director of Slow Factory, which she founded in 2013. It's a nonprofit that works at the intersection of environmental and social justice. I started Slow Factory with the idea that the fashion industry needs and all product industries probably need to slow down. And it was the idea of the slow movement. That's Celine. Every year, Slow Factory hosts a conference to build literacy around sustainability among industry leaders, scientists, advocates, and influencers. I applied it to this idea of, um, you know, learning about the intersection of human rights and social justice and why we need the two in order to work in that space and, and, and talk about sustainability or talk about, you know, doing things that are good for the earth and good for the people. And they use Instagram to make knowledge broadly accessible. Give them a follow. They're a very worthy addition to your feed. Celine serves on the Council of Progressive International and is an MIT Media Lab Directors Fellow. Since 2003, her work has revolved around fashion, politics, and the climate, and she champions self-education and the idea of open learning, which we'll talk about today. But before we get into that, I have a friend and a colleague with me now. It's Youth to the People's Director of Education, Laura Klein. Hi, Alyssa. Thanks for having me. Hi, Laura. Thanks for being with me. I would love if you could tell me a little bit about your background in skincare and how you wound up at Youth to the People. All right. Well, I think it was kind of um, by happy accident, really. <laughs> I, uh, you know, as one does, needed to pay for things and pay for college and ended up working in retail environment. Um, and I had this passion for art and cosmetics and skincare, um, makeup, and decided to uh, throw myself into a full-time position at a clinic counter at Gottschalk's when those existed for those who remember what those were. <laughs> um, but it was a wonderful experience Did that for two years. That was um, 2005. Um, it's been a minute now, I guess, since we're in 2020. But um, through my career, I really made different steps to other brands that were really skincare focused, but also became more interested in clean and what clean looked like in that landscape and how it's evolved from 2005 to 2020 is just amazing to watch. Um, so through that journey, I worked for Origins, Clearins, and then Kiehl's. And I um, was very happy at all of these roles. It was just really an opportunity to learn more and get a different experience and grow my um, really managerial skills. And I happened to meet Joan Gregg 
um, in a Walnut Creek Nordstrom where I picked up a box of their superfood cleanser, read the ingredients and being the ingredient and skincare nerd I am, just absolutely fell in love with the ethics, the very purposeful ingredients and just felt like this was something I'd never seen before in my years of being in the industry and knew that how special this was and just wanted to run with the potential. That's, yeah. I mean, what a cool trajectory. And I really, when I think about what clean skincare was in 2005, it was so crunchy. I think that's the best word yeah. <laughs> versus how it is now. Yes, it was. I think, um, you know, the word natural was thrown out a lot. You know, you'd see it on a bag of potato chips and on a moisturizer and not really know what that means. And, you know, really being able to find what that means in the industry and also what it means specifically to you, to the people, you know, it varies. So um, sticking true to ethics and standards and always being curious about how to formulate better and how it impacts the, not only the person, but also the world um, is something that is really special and near and dear to my heart and important um, to me just wherever I am and whatever, you know, business I'm supporting. 100%. I think that's why, one of the reasons why Youth to the People is so special. Um, so speaking of products and efficacy and skincare, you know how I always ask you for skincare routines and advice? Yes, which I love. Okay, so it's fall now and a lot of people, myself included, were changing up our skincare routines to adapt to the season. What's your top advice for the fall season that most skin types could really benefit from? Ooh, I love this question. Wardrobing for season question. Um, you know, environmental conditions and lifestyle plays a huge role in skincare and what products you're choosing day to day. And I love that you mentioned like all skin types because there are certain ingredients that like any skin type would want to look for, especially when you have drier air. Maybe you live in an area like Chicago, for example, that gets a lot of high winds or I know in Toronto, my skin almost fell off from being chapped, you know, so it's, uh, you know, really wanting to be mindful of how much humectants you're getting, but also how you're locking in those hydrators with an emollient, like um, different types of oils or glycerin. Um, you want to look for ingredients that are going to give you a good balance of both um, based off of what your skin needs for the environment you're in. So um, the youth of the people has a really amazing assortment of options of products to add in. Number one that comes to mind would be our dream oil. So the, the Superberry Dream Hydrate and Glow Oil is really this lovely blend of emollients that are flash absorbing, lightweight. They are designed to lock in water and hydrate your skin while never feeling greasy or heavy, which is really cool for someone like myself who's like more of that true combination. I have like a definite oily T-zone um, that still needs to add an oil. So to add in an oil, any skin type, whether oily, dry, combo, sensitive, you name it, acne prone, could benefit from that oil um, without worrying about it being congestive. Two ways to do that would be, one, just add a couple drops into your moisturizer in the palm of your hand, warm it up and apply, or you can seal in the, your skincare routine and apply oil after your moisturizer and just press it into the skin. A good user tip if you're oily and you're like, what in the world? No, I'm not going to use an oil. 
try doing it at night first. You will be pleasantly surprised that when you wake up, your skin is like velvety soft without feeling oily. And it'll end up balancing out your oil production the longer that you use it. Okay, how does that work? Is it sort of signaling to your skin that there's enough oil and it doesn't need to overproduce? Yep, you're right. I know that's it's a really like wild concept, but um, our skin is always trying to like protect us. That's its whole job. It's our biggest organ. It's it's really our last defense against between us, our organs, everything, and the environment. So if your skin is dehydrated and lacking water, it's going to produce more oil. So, um, you know, and if you're already an oilier skin type with active sebaceous glands, you know, when you provide it a bioavailable, meaning like your skin knows what this oil is and is going to soak it up right away, that type of bioavailable oil will end up replacing that excess of that sebum that we naturally make so that you don't have to make as much anymore because it's like, oh, I already got it. I'm good. Thank you so much for being here, Laura. I think now it's time for a little bit of wisdom on sustainability and perspective. So let's get into my interview with Celine Saman. Welcome, Celine. Thank you. So at Youth to the People, we have this thing called the Youth Questionnaire. It's our collection of questions on topics like freedom, pride, ego, affirmation, energy. And I would love if you could pick a number between 1 and 20. 13. What is your most useful affirmation? I am safe. I am love. So Celine, something that's so powerful about Slow Factory is how you make knowledge and understanding really open and accessible. Can you talk a little bit about what stirred you to create Slow Factory in the first place? So I started Slow Factory with the idea that the fashion industry needs and all product industries probably need to slow down. And it was the idea of the slow movement. You know, we saw that in the food industry, it was pretty common. Everybody started to understand that we needed to, you know, eat local, eat organic, um, you know, support local agriculture, slow down on our meat consumption, probably also stop eating that much meat, that much dairy and so on and so forth. So the idea of slowing down using wellness, using food was starting to reach mainstream. And, And what I felt was the equivalent or we needed to also focus on slowing down all products or or, or the product industry, fashion, um, you know, objects, all sorts of things that were going through this very fast uh, way of manufacturing. And so Slow Factory started with that in mind. And we started by manufacturing our own products in the first six, seven years of our existence. Uh, and then slowly but surely have evolved outside of manufacturing our own products, but more working closely with the fashion industry and also organizations outside the fashion industry that are impacted by the fashion industry, like the waste industry, um, also the agricultural industries that are part of the fashion ecosystem. Yeah. Has education always been a central point in your life? Like what brought you to incorporate education into Slow Factory? I started my career, if you want, building my own education as I went. I was sort of a free student going from university to university, taking the classes that I wanted as I was working and building my education in that way, if you will. And early in the 2000 years, 2003 precisely, I was invited to join the open education movement 
with the rise of the internet, there was the rise also of peer-to-peer knowledge. And I was invited to sort of participate and contribute to the open knowledge movement by participating with groups like Creative Commons, uh, also learning, uh, you know, computer coding online, uni- uh, learning, um, you know, in information design, learning interaction design, user experience design, all of these things that eventually d- developed from information architecture. Um, and so all of these things I started learning online with my peers. So it was peer-to-peer information. Open education is also about putting back to the community what you've learned so that we can continue building upon each other's work. And that's what made me as a professional being, like as someone who entered the workforce with a body of knowledge that was very relevant to to what the industry needed. And I worked in tech um, for a very long time. And uh, even as I started Slow Factory in 2013, I was very active, still working in tech, teaching um, user experience design and open knowledge, working closely with the Creative Commons uh, licensing. And so all of that DNA that was me basically that made me as a as a professional I applied it to this idea of um, you know learning about the intersection of human rights and social justice and why we need the two in order to work in that space and 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 talk about sustainability or talk about you know doing things that are good for the earth and good for the people So I read that Slow Factory is proposing that we use the term climate positivity instead of sustainability. Climate positivity goes beyond achieving net zero carbon emissions to actually create an environmental benefit by removing additional carbon dioxide. And I really love how Slow Factory describes it as, quote, going back to our roots of living in harmony with nature, end quote. So how does Slow Factory move past maintaining the status quo to actually enact positive change? So climate positivity, we read it first in Fast Company and we felt like it was uh, an appropriate term as we were developing our climate uh, conference for January 2020, which feels like literally five years ago, but it was just, you know, a few months ago. And so on January 31st, 2020, we put together a large climate conference called Study Hall, which is our yearly conference around climate and culture. And of course, it's at the intersection of human rights and environmental justice. And um, we wanted a title for uh, this, this conference. The working title was Sustainability at Scale. And then eventually we changed the word sustainability for climate positivity at scale because the word sustainability uh, tend to be misunderstood. Okay, we, we, we don't know yet what it means because it's so vague. What is sustainability? What are we trying to sustain? Oftentimes, sustainability comes in uh, an economic conversation around a product where we are mostly worried about the profitability of that product uh, rather than if it's actually sustaining communities around it, if it's actually sustaining the environment that is being exploited to create that product. So there is a hierarchy in in sustainability and profit is at the top. And which for us, we wanted to change a little bit the paradigm of these concepts and working with the word climate positivity. Of course, it's all working titles as we continue to develop what works best. Uh, We felt like it was just a little bit more accurate as we were trying to really create a way to measure what is What is it that we're trying to say here or trying to create a way to have um, an incentive towards where we're trying to go? 
I mean, I really love that shift in language. It brings about more accountability, I think. And especially because sustainability has become a term that's so widely used, it's lost a little bit of its meaning, but climate positivity brings more context. And speaking of context, I want to switch gears a little bit to education. So much of the history that's being taught in schools is lacking essential context or details, or sometimes it's just completely false. Um, are there any lessons that stick out to you that we need to really revisit? And like, how would you reteach those lessons? So the quest for objectivity is a quest that's very dangerous because, of course, objectivity doesn't exist as no one has an objective perspective. We are all subjective to our own experience and our how we were socialized to understand the world and how we are basically, you know, belonging with a certain group you know, uh, and in relationship to history. Uh, that being said, uh, we have been taught only one perspective. And oftentimes in history books, you only read about the ones who actually won the conquests or won the wars. And you don't really hear about the ones that were being uh, culturally erased, you, uh, exploited, enslaved, and forced into labor. And so um, what we want to hear and what we want the um, history uh, as, a, as a field of study, especially in schools and in early education, in early childhood education, is to start talking about the real things at an early age so that we are not faced with this discomfort, this massive paralyzing discomfort when we are faced with the truth. Um, and although objectivity is fluctuating between one thing and another, we can achieve a way that we are all um, understanding that the type of history that we need to learn is the history that uh, has happened, you know, the facts. And oftentimes we are not able to even know about those facts until we find ourselves um, researching on our own or finding ourselves wanting to have a certain niche of understanding about certain nations or certain groups of people uh, in the context of the United States, you know, it's only when you get to university or college that you get to choose whether or not you want to dive deeper into um, black feminism and, uh, you know, the uh, indigenous knowledge or, you know, um, the civil rights movements. You don't get to know that before then. And not everyone has the luxury to go into college to learn about these things. So that's where, um, education around history um, is key. And that's what we talk about often at Slow Factory because when we want to talk about the future, we also have to reconcile with the past. And it sounds like part of what's so important in continuing this self-education is gaining more perspectives and allowing more voices to tell their side of the story so that we really get a fuller picture of what happened. It's really impossible to do when you have one perspective or one side of the story and I'd really like to dive deeper into this concept of decolonizing education. Can you talk about what that means? Decolonizing education. Okay, that's a big uh, <laughs> question. I mean, it for sure starts with shifting perspectives, shifting perspectives from a uh, white-centric, US-centric point of view to a uh, any other point of view. <laughs> And so basically it could be from the point of view of the indigenous experience, uh, the black experience in America, or even an international perspective where it's not necessarily someone from the United States because the United States, you know, is uh, 
a country that is very powerful, that is dominating all other countries, that has its soldiers in most of our countries in the global south, that is controlling the politics and the outcomes of most of the countries in the global south, particularly if they are close to the uh, oil countries or the gold countries or the cotton countries. So basically all the global south is controlled by the United States. If you want to know global politics um, are very intertwined with um, the existence and the affirmation of the US. And that being said, it's important to diversify our perspectives in order to understand decolonization because decolonization is a global movement. Of course, it's very young in the United States because the US is 500 years old compared to other countries in the rest of the world that are thousands of years old, thousands of years old of conflict and of um, colonialism. That being said, it's important to have a global movement when we are discussing uh, these topics, because whatever we're talking about in the United States is going to impact the global south, um, because these policies are oftentimes neglected, you know, in the U.S. Um, the U.S. tends to just want to talk about the U.S. and imagine itself alone. I read on NPR that American history is taught in a way that convinces students that, you know, American history started out great and it's only improving. And it really said that because students are taught that everything is only supposed to get better, they don't have to do the things that engaged citizens do. So how do you make that link between miseducation and political apathy? There is a lot of things that's related with political apathy and this idea that um, criticism and cynicism and this bleak portraiture of the future that's been completely dominated by white cis male uh, identities have been dictating what we think about the environment, what we think about Middle East, what we think about you know, um, the rest of the world, what we think about any conflict that's happening outside of US soil uh, as something that's not going to change. Um, whether it's the environment or this or that, it's the cynicism that really deprives people of their ability to have the curiosity, the imagination, to imagine another world. And that's also a form of control of information. It's also how we control information in a way that dis disproportionately affects people who are being oppressed, people who aren't having the same kind of opportunities. Um, and the domination of like, what we, the kind of rhetoric that dominates the, 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 the minds of, of people is that it's too late. You know, there's a countdown, there's 10 years, and then we're doomed. So if climate change is real, and if in fact we are doomed, why should we bother? And that is what creates the apathy this idea that there isn't any solution, in fact. And what also paired with this individualistic culture and mindset that's very uh, common in the global north, where you exist just for yourself. You are, you know, if you are vegan and you stop buying fast fashion, then the world is going to be better. When in fact, that alone doesn't make anything you have to work with each other. We have to work as a community. You have to know your neighbors. You have to stop gentrifying your, the places you're in. You have to be able to have conflict so that you have resolutions. You have to be able to talk to one another. So it's all a cultural shift that 
literally takes you out of apathy into this idea that, you know, you want to see a solution, you got to put your sleeves up and start working on the solution. And again, this idea, what's the opposite of apathy? It's action, it's hope, it's faith. All of these are actions. They're verbs. They're things that you do constantly so that you are, you know, on, in a way, part of the movements that are doing the work, are pushing towards progress, are researching towards progress, are, are having the difficult, difficult conversations so that we are closer and closer to progress. You know, it's not a thing that you do once and then you clap and that's it. It's, it's a dedication from your lifestyle, from if it could be a dedication of your career. It's a dedication. Okay, so on that note, we have elections coming up on November 3rd. What would you say to encourage people to vote? I mean, I can't vote in the U.S. I wish I could. Um, you know, it's difficult because the solution, the, the, the issues is not so much voting, but it's also feeling represented, feeling like you are seeing yourself in the leaders that are being, you know, running for, for, um, for leadership and for being elected. And that's, I think, the, the biggest, um, it's not just vote, it's also be active in your local politics. It's be active in voting for, in the local politics, whoever is representing you or being aware, learning. Again, it's about education. You have to be a, an active citizen and being an active citizen is not just now we're going to go vote and that's it. We're going to call it a day. It is very much about community building. And what we can say to people, it's just like if you see no hope and no point, that means you're not involved enough. You're hiding. And if you are hiding and you feel like hopeless, I would encourage for you to really step out of your comfort zone and reach out to people that you don't agree with. Because that's when you are going to start to have the difficult conversation and the work begins there, you know? The access that we have now to information and misinformation on social media has totally exploded in the last few years. How do you apply critical thinking to this huge array of information and misinformation that's available? How do we discern what's real versus fake news? Okay, that's a very good question. I think that, yeah. you know, with the social media and with the way that uh, information is being organized online, we are unfortunately trapped in those bubbles away from one another. There's these progressive bubbles that exist or these right-wing bubbles or, you know, far-left bubbles. <laughs> and so we exist in, in, in these bubbles. We don't really have an idea of what other people are thinking and doing unless we really dig for it, unless we really look for it because from just our social media activity we're just going to be seeing what we like you know and that's super dangerous because that's what has impacted and and resulted in the elections in 2016 it's the idea that oh no we're it's fine it's fine you know we're gonna get you know of course we're not gonna vote whoever is gonna be elected you know because people had the confidence from having interacted online on social media, it's very dangerous, actually. That's why I'm saying you have to get out of your house, literally. I know now you have to social distance and wear a mask, but 
you know, like you have to be a part of a community. You have to seek that community and look for it and, you know, nurture it because even in that community, you can just always be surrounded by people who think like you. That's so true that you have to engage with people who don't think exactly like you, both so you can expand your worldview and challenge yourself and also to make sure that the information that you're spreading is the information you want to be spreading. Having a more whole picture of the world is imperative to that, especially with this lockdown and the inconsistency with schools and not having access to community the way that we used to. So how do you engage beyond these bubbles? How do you train yourself to really figure out what's real? I mean, that's a very good question. I feel like uh, it is through conversation. It is through conversation like these. It's through conversation that you can have online, that you have in real life, that you engage with uh, folks that uh, are debating um, their points of view. And of course, critical thinking has been robbed from us because we are not taught to have critical thinking that's actually a threat for control and threat for the um, capitalist patriarchal uh, oppressive society that we're in is it's for the public to suddenly realize that and to demand change so critical thinking is something that we have to practice like a muscle it's a muscle that hasn't been used if you will because we've been taught follow the rules do your job be nice you know uh, fit in that box and don't stand out too much. And suddenly people realized, uh, especially during this lockdown where I feel like the world was uh, asked to go on timeout, that people were like, oh my God, what am I doing? What am I doing? Why am I doing this? Why am I working in this field? Who am I protecting? Who am I defending? Who am I working for? You know, and people are starting to realize their power and their position in society and how they are connected with whoever's in office. And how did that happen? How did we let this happen? And how they are connected to the cop that um, had his knee on, uh, on George Floyd and how they are connected to the cops that burst into Breonna Taylor's home and shot her and left her there. And how the silence and the apathy and the ignorance and the complacency all were tied into this belief that we just have to follow the rules and, you know, stay out of trouble and, you know, work and go on vacation in some fancy country, you know, uh, or not fancy country, rather, in some countries of the global south and so on and so forth. So it's this illusion that everything's under control that got suddenly destroyed. And that's a good thing because that's when we get out of apathy. That's when we start practicing our critical thinking. That's when we start reading more books, more long form, watching documentaries, reading the news from start to finish, reading many different journals or different newspapers, sorry, that will offer us different perspectives, discussing with family about politics, about health, about education, all of these topics that America really refuses to address. Um, and that's when we are starting to see we are at the beginning of an uprising of an awareness where we, we, the work is just started. Although the work has been going on for decades, hundreds of years of resistance and of civil rights movements, of indigenous resistance and civil rights movements and 
you know, now it has reached the mainstream and the hope is that it doesn't be, you know, stuffed into a corner and shut, shut down. But you are seeing what's going on in Portland. You are seeing what's going on in, you know, how protesters, peaceful protesters are being treated, you know? And so conversation, discussion is important in that space for everyone to engage. We all need to have these conversations at the same time with everybody. Because the more we talk, the more our mind expands and the more we can learn and our critical thinking will catch up. There are things that are common sense to our human existence that are non-negotiables. Such as? Such as human rights. For all, mm -hmm. for everyone, mm -hmm. all humans. Environmental rights for all nations. Non-negotiable. This is our duty on this planet. This is what we have to do. We have to learn how to coexist and we have to learn how to coexist with nature and to learn from nature, not to impose our constructed illusion on nature. It's a spiritual awareness. It's a spiritual awakening because the separation from spirit, from the spirituality and science, the separation from spirituality and math, spirituality and design, spirituality and lifestyle, has conducted us in believing that there's gonna be basically like no one to save you, but you. So how are you gonna save yourself? You have to start learning about who you are and who are you? Nobody knows what you are, but you. You live your own experience and it really starts with yourself. Sorry, it's getting really trippy, but it does. It starts with yourself. It starts with how you live and how you exist and how you coexist. It's a work on you. If everyone was able to do that at the same time as working in communities, then we are getting closer and closer to a movement that we can be building. But the how is a whole other hour of conversation. <laughs> yes, and another time we will get into that. Thank you so much, Celine. It was really great speaking with you. To the People podcast is a production of YTTP Studios. For more information about Youth to the People, visit our website at youthtothepeople.com. For more information on Slow Factory, visit slowfactory.foundation. This episode was edited by Menazel. It was produced by Menazel and myself, and our theme music was recorded by YTTP co-founder Greg Gonzalez and Hannah Fernando. Thanks for listening.